This podcast is recorded on the 3rd of April 2019 and it deals with the three genes study which is performed amongst uh, Dutch Jewish Jewish second generation descendants of the Holocaust. It's about the children of survivors. The title of this podcast is The Legacy of Jeremiah's Bart, A Jewish Son of Zeshov. If history is seen as a series of causes, consequences, events and incidents moving in a pulsating web of continuity and discontinuity, the story of Jeremiah's Bart starting in Zeshov, Poland, at the end of the 19th century, is a puzzle piece that does not easily fit into those big lines in which we like to tell tell about the past. As said, the name of Jeremiah's Bart is attached to a study, and it's uh, it's deals with second generation Holocaust survivors. Uh, it's uh, the study takes place under auspicious of the Jeremiah's Bart Foundation, and it's a capi- it captures a multidisciplinary research in the underlying aspect of the twentieth century largest crime, the Holocaust or Shoah. Three genes searches for the medical consequences of the genocide in the offspring of Jewish survivors. It's the intriguing vitality of Jeremiah's Bart, uh, a Jewish Galician who survived two world wars and genocide, which was the direct reason for setting up a study for setting up this study. Jeremiah's Bart was born on the uh, in October na- eighteen hundred ninety four in Zeshov in the Zeshov County of the Podkapaki region in Poland, which was by that time still the Austrian Hungarian monarchy. The name of Jeremiah Bart's father was Jakob Schulenbart born in 1862, who was an innkeeper and owner of a hotel on the outbound road from Zeshov to Gorlice. And in Gorlice, Jakob Schulem was born himself. The fact that Jakob Schulem ever existed can only be derived from a liquor license issued by the Polish government in 1936, two years after his death. In this liquor license, it said that he could sell alcohol. The Bart family, in which Jakob Schulem was born, was a large one. He had six brothers and sisters uh, who, like him, founded families of their own and produced offspring. Uh, Jakob Schulem married Sarah Leichtag from Brostek, from the Debeka County, who was born in 1868. Jakob Schulem 
and Sarah Leichtag had three children, of which Jeremias was the oldest and only son. After him came two girls, Asia, or called Ethel Etelka, born in 1897, and Esther Rivka, born in 1902. Of the Existence of Asia, who died in 36 of breast cancer, remains only a tombstone. And Esther, she was, she was murdered during the Shoah. And we don't know exactly how she... Uh, there are several options. She was murdered in the ghetto of Zeshov. She was shot down in the woods of Woguf in the vicinity of Zeshov or she was killed gassed in Belzec. At the time Eremias was born Galicia still belonged to the Austrian Hungarian Empire as it did since 1772. By the beginning of the 20th century, 10.9% of its inhabitants of Galicia, which was around 872,000 people, were Jewish. When the First World War fever caught him, Jeremiah enlisted into the Austrian-Hungarian army, the Count K army, like so many other young men of his age. And to himself, according to himself, it was an absolute necessity because from the Cossacks, by which he meant the Russians, never, ever nothing good came. In September 1915, uh, Jeremiah joined the 40th Infantry Regiment and was uh, rapidly wounded, severely wounded, as a result uh, of bayonet strikes uh, during battle and one should expect as so many soldiers he would have died of his wounds but on the contrary he recovered from them and after the war he left Zeshov and he went to study in Vienna it was a medical study, and at the end of the 1920s, he started his own medical practice in Vienna. In the 1930s, the early 1930s, he married a local girl, uh, girl Gertrude Bünzlau, from a well-to-do family, a Jewish family, and they soon became the parents of a son, Peter. And so far, so good for this small family. It was only after a few months after the birth of Peter that Hitler annexed Austria in March 1938. The Bart family uh, fled to the Netherlands. They could take a few of their possessions with them and the inventory of the practice of Jeremiah's. Some of the savings were already on a Swiss, Swiss bank account and in his pocket he had boat tickets to, uh, to New York where a nephew lived. 
They arrived in Rotterdam, they went to Amsterdam, and the Jeremiah's never redeemed his tickets. Why? We don't know. The story doesn't tell us. Uh, the reasons remain unclear. They settled in Amsterdam, which was by then a, a city with a large Jewish population. Uh, it was not. Uh, it was n known as the Jerusalem of the West. Uh, the Dutch government at that time wasn't particularly uh, friendly towards Jewish refugees. They called them unwanted strangers since 38. So at the time of need, the, the Dutch government wasn't that friendly. After the German invasion of Poland, 39, there was no contact between the Galician family matters matters and Gertrude and Jeremiah's Bart. Within a year after Germany's overrun of the Netherlands, in the overrun was in May 10th, and in 1941, so in 1941, the persecution of the Jews also hit the Amsterdam Bart family. Discrimination and isolation escalated in what is called genocide on the Jewish, Jews, the Shoah. Of course, we all know that the Shoah is called the biggest crime ever. Without prejudice to other modern genocide, it is a kind of crimes of crimes. Crimes of crime. The paradigm against which any form of massive violence is weighed. It's called unprecedented in history by the influential Israeli historian Yehuda Bauer. And by un unprecedented, he indicates that it means uh, because the perpetrators decided to kill every individual within the alleged victim group without, without any exception. The life of Jews anywhere in the world has been to a greater or lesser effect, extent affected by the Shoah. And although it's anachronistic to speak in those terms about this period of the Second World War, the Shoah is a collective trauma. A widely accepted concept, as seen by the Stockholm Declaration of 1998, as well as the res as Resolution 67 of the United Nations Gen General Assembly of November 1st of November 2005. It's because of the Shoah that Jeremiah lost almost every one of his family members. The, his Galician family was killed between 1939 and 1942. How? We don't know exactly yet. Uh, occupied Holland underwent a completely different type of treatment of the Germans as Poland experienced. The Jewish, uh, the Jewish persecution in the Netherlands began relatively late 
early 1941, and Jeremiah's Bart's wife, Gertrude, was one of the first victims of it. She was killed on February uh, 22, the 22nd of February 1941, during the very first raid on Jews in Amsterdam. Uh, she shot when the neighborhood was blocked and she started running uh, towards a bridge. She was fleeing and she was shot down and she dropped or fell into the canal and she drowned. Uh, we don't know how this affected Jeremiah and little Peter. The story doesn't tell us. We can only imagine how terrible and tragic it must have been. We What we know is that he must have gone back soon afterwards working illegally as a doctor at the central gathering place of Amsterdam, the Hollandse Schouwburg, the Dutch theater. From the overcrowded place, the Germans and their Dutch accomplices sent the Jews by train to Westerbork transit camp. And from this former and pre-war refugee camp in the bare spot at the town of Hoogalen in the province of Drenthe, located in the northeast of the Netherlands, every week a train left towards what was called euphemistically the east. And uh, the Jews went on uh, transports to Poland. Uh, Jeremiah and his son escaped this fate, although it was by a close call. For a short while, they were destined destined for Theresian side stud, and uh, it's a very uh, strange story how he escaped, how they escaped, but it was with the help of a high Hauptsturmbahnführer. A high official of the German as German SS, uh, Ferdinand Austerfunten. The story goes like this: Jeremiah had heard on the uh, Polish the- uh, Polish radio in London about the um, extermination of Jews in Poland and he told his fellow Jews about it they they discussed it and he was so mad that he went to visit the highest official of the highest officials of the Jewish council they were called Abraham Asher and David Cohen and he told them what he had heard and afterwards he said that he heard uh, Jan Karski speak. And um, what he did was kind of audacious. And he told uh, David Cohen and Asher that there were uh, installations which gassed people. And then the Jewish Council officials said to him, uh, said, told him that he had to shut up. And uh, if he couldn't shut up, 
then he should find out if it was all true. And they put him on a list, a list to the east. When, uh, after this call, Jeremiah and his son went to the train station and they were uh, spotted by this important SS Hauptsturmführer, Austerfunten. And um, Austerfunten knew Jeremiah from the Hollandse Schouwburg. Jeremiah was his personal dentist and physician over there. And they could speak in German together because both of them had a kind of Viennese accent. And uh, Ausefinte told uh, on told Jeremiah on the spot, "What are you doing here? Are you mad? Are you a madman? You know what's happening if you st step into the train. So drop and go into hiding with your son." <coughs> And um, he removed the, their names from the transportation list. And Jeremiah and his son, they went into hiding. And after, they had to hide in several addresses, on several addresses. And they survived the war. So they also survived the genocide. In 1945, Jeremiah was stateless. A single father of 51 years of age. And he was completely penniless. He couldn't uh, get his money of, out of the Swiss bank account. He, uh, his uh, doctoral diploma as a dentist and as a physician was invalidated by the uh, German, by the Dutch officials. They didn't recognize German and Austrian diplomas. And... Uh, he had to find a way to earn some money. We don't know how he managed in his new life, but he did. Soon after uh, 45, he met a Dutch lady who was uh, in the same family circumstances as Jeremiah was. She lost her uh, sickly husband during... Uh, the war years, she survived into hiding all of her memory, her, all of her family, family members uh, perished. Uh, Jeremiah married this Dutch Shoah survivor called Maria Goudekit. And they uh, got two sons themselves, one in 1948, uh, Jacques Bart, and in 49, Ruben Bart. And they were relatively old parents. Maria Gaudeket was by 48, she was 43 years of age, and, it, and uh, Jacques Bart was, his, was her first son. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah was already uh, 53. And he had to study again, and he was poor. He recovered his doctoral diploma as a doctor in uh, the late 40s after a very short and quick study.
and received Dutch citizenship in 53. It is according to oral tradition then that the remaining part of his life, Jeremiah showed the utmost of resilience. And it's uh, unknown where this resilience originated from and what it contained. We have a lot of questions about it. Is it because he focused on the good, only on the pleasant things and not on the painful memories? Is that how he managed to live in the present? Uh, for us now, uh, in 2019, it it's, uh, seems a strange situation. But it's true that, there are so that his sons don't remember a traumatized father. So did he have no trauma at all? In the Netherlands, in the 50s, the word trauma... trauma was hardly used. Uh, Frank Hermans, a, judge, a Dutch scholar, a sociologist, uh, studied the phenomenon of trauma and he writes about the situation in the Netherlands and trauma that the world of 45 was not adequately adequately prepared to deal with the emotional after-effects of the war and the genocide unleashed upon the Jewish citizens. What was remarkable that there was no massive withdrawal by the Jews from the workplace. Uh, they were perhaps disturbed by their wartime experience, but you could not show by withdrawal from work. Their problems did not come to light through absence from uh, from work, not by physical complaints of difficulties. The general opinion was that the entire population was affected. There were even people so afflicted of, who fought against being depicted as victims who didn't feel like victims, but like survivors. So it was this self-image they had or wanted to have. They want. They told them. They told each other that they survived Hitler and victimhood was seen as kind of capitulation, a capitulation after the fact. Of course, others were so deeply harmed that they could not find words, and they did not want to disturb the frenzy of celebration surrounding this uh, the liberation, but nonetheless so desperately to connect to the new life. From an academically academic perspective, it can be said that it that only psychiatrists and psychologists study individual trauma and that um, it's to historians to deal with collective trauma. There's uh, one discipline called oral history that studies both, if possible, the interaction between them. This complicated issue, uh, especially is this this is a complicated issue, especially if you want to include the recent interest in trauma from epigenetics.
it's not for the first time that so many academics uh, deal with the interaction between all these disciplines. It's a kind of uh, common knowledge which we also find in history and in literature. If you look at the writings of, say, Aaron Appelfeld, who writes in the skin and shirt in the early 1970s of the 20th century, the following. After the war, a strange optimism seized people. The pain of separation was still fresh. People were incapable of evaluating evaluating what happened to them, what had happened with them. The circulating blood knew more than the minds. Nevertheless, there was a kind of optimism. The circulating blood already knew the wound can no longer be sewn up. We all dry withered seeds, Applefat concludes. Continuity will no longer come from us. Of course, he talked about survivors of the Shoah, not about the children who were born and raised after the genocides. Since the rapid development of epigenetics, the boundaries, the boundaries of existing paradigms about trauma are no longer as clear as once before. Nowadays, we speak about transgenerational transmission of trauma to generations born after the long-lasting stressful events. And of course, Shoah is a long-lasting stressful event. Fundamental scientific research, such as done by Rachel Yehuda in, from Mount Sinai in New York, um, shows that trauma and post-traumatic stress in a mother's body affects the development of babies in uh, in the womb. People conceived and born after extremely stressful events and, gen- and genocide is, as said before, may suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome and they may have similar physical complaints as their parents uh, do who really suffered from a direct PTSD trauma. Perhaps not every one of them will be affected equally of these children, but transgenerational transmission is no longer hypothetical. Um, if we look back longer into history, then we find uh a common knowledge which could not be could not be proven of course by that time but um if we look at the 17th century and the saying of the french philosopher rené descartes and we cite his words then he said There must be a relationship between physical experiences and the way the mind functions becomes true. The way the mind functions becomes a true and proven reality. So there's a common knowledge not proven by then, but nowadays it can be proven, and Rachel Yehuda did. Uh, It's with the it's with three genes that the Jeremiah's Barth Foundation operates uh, 
at this interface of history, psychology, biology, and epigenetics. And the three genes, the focus point of three genes is the uh, is the biology, the the are uh, the medical causes and outcome, and the oral history, and all with the focus on the second generation, the children of survivors. The research looks upon the physical consequences and gathers medical data of children of survivors. It collects their stories and weighs them in a particular uh, context, personal, family, and a broader historical context. What about Jeremiah's? How did his story went on? As told before, he seemed to have been an example of resilience. He managed to build a socially successful career, performing two thriving dental practices in Amsterdam Center. Uh, he traveled the world. He went many, many times abroad in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He met several of history's big men, like Ben-Gurion, and then he died in September 14th, 1984, due to a medical error, which was very sad. The Judaism, as he as it once flourished in Galicia, was something he longed for his long life. Uh, the remnant of Dutch Judaism, with his with its Ashkenazi and Sephardic tradition, did not equal his warm Galician Hasidic roots. He returned to Poland, Poland only one time after the Shoah. During the years of the Cold War in the early 70s, he went to Warsaw and also visited Seshov, trying to enter the Jewish cemetery. But the gates were closed and the graves overgrown. He tried to say Kaddish and he had to do it before, uh, before standing before the gates. I want to thank you for listening to this story, this podcast about the legacy of Jeremiah's part. His story is a personal story. It's also, his name will be recalled and said again in the Three Genes study. And uh, as said, it is a multidisciplinary study with potential to shift paradigms. Jeremiah Bart is a Jewish son, was a Jewish son of Zeshov, and his name will be remembered. Thank you for listening.